you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, we're just going to read the one verse again this morning as we continue on in our study of the Beatitudes. Hear the word of the Lord. Simply this, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Probably one of the highest of the Beatitudes, they shall see God. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we <clears throat> ask that you would open our eyes, uh, that we can see past uh, the things of this world, can see past our own sin to find our Savior, uh, to find that rock and refuge in a dark world, to find the hope, uh, the assurance of salvation through Jesus Christ, and that we would be able to find as well, Lord, through the wisdom of your word as the Holy Spirit is helping us to understand, to comprehend, as he illumines our mind and, and softens our hearts, Lord, we pray that we would receive um, the manna from heaven this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Most of us who have walked with Christ a number of years now, um, we often forget how different the way of the gospel is from the ways of this world. For in the kingdom of God, as we hear on different occasions, the last shall be first, the weak shall be strong, and the least shall be the greatest. So even when we read through these Beatitudes in our text this morning, we often forget just how drastically different they are in terms of understanding the blessings of God compared to the blessings of this world. God actually considers those who are poor to be blessed, those who are mourning to be blessed, those who are lowly in their own minds and their own understanding of who they are. These are the blessed ones, the Scripture teaches. So you might have heard on occasion from different preachers, it's a very common statement when we're trying to summarize the way of Christ or the way of the cross, to say something like this, the way up is the way down. You heard that before? The way up is the way down, or, or vice versa. Um, to signify that for one to ascend God's holy hill of blessing, one must first descend into the valley of testing, or what might be referred to as the valley of vision. In order to see God, there has to be some humbling first, if you will. Well, uh, if you missed me last week, hopefully you did a little bit, uh, for our 23rd anniversary, uh, super cheap Pastor Bolin here um, found $75 tickets to fly out west and then also sat through a timeshare presentation for a free place to stay. Did not buy any timeshares in case anybody's wondering. Um, but we did it because Ellen had been asking for a number of years to return back to the Grand Canyon because the last time we went, we attempted to go hike it, but I the dummy that I am, stepped on a cactus the day before in Saguaro National Park, so I could not descend from the rim. So we went back, and that was our 23rd anniversary, celebrating a week later. Now, what we did was to climb down and then climb back up again the same day, which is usually discouraged for a number of different reasons. Um, usually, uh, firstly, uh, because you can quickly run out of sunlight. Uh, this time of year, there's about 10 hours of sunlight. 
and it takes about 10 hours to get down and get back. So if you don't do it fast enough, you could be stuck in the dark with all sorts of wild animals. Secondly, the trail uh, that we took has no water at all on the way down. So you have to at least make it down and then start making your way back up before you find any source of water. So if you don't have enough water with you, you can die. And then third, it's just simply physically exhausting and excruciating in every way, for especially someone who's not a natural hiker, which I'm not. And uh, that's proven every year from the number of people that have to be airlifted out because they can't make it back up the mountain. So consequently, there are signs posted everywhere for the first three miles on the way down stating the same message again and again and again. It simply says something like this, going down is optional, but coming back up is mandatory. So mind your steps, don't take too many and don't go too far down because you likely won't be able to come back up. It's easy to go down. I mean, you're just, you're, you're pretty much going straight down. It feels like a breeze. And then you, when you start to look back up where you came down from, it's just a sheer wall of rock that has many switchbacks over and over and over again, and uh, it, it's pretty intimidating. So the, the, those signs have proven effective for the vast majority of hikers, or at least tourists, to the Grand Canyon, for on a yearly basis, there are about 5 million visitors to the park. Less than 1% actually hike more than a mile down into the rim. So of the 5 million people, less than 1% actually go to see it beyond what you can see from the rim. And even those, most of them don't even go a step below the rim of the canyon. Most of them just see it from there. In fact, probably most of us, I've done it before, where I've just looked down, that's nice. Next, you know, in that sense. Well, I I submit to you that Christianity is somewhat like that, but also a little different, because in Christianity, going down is not optional. It's absolutely essential. You have to go down in order that you might come back up again. Um, before one can ascend God's holy hill of blessing, you first have to go down. You have to be humbled. You have to deal with the sin that so easily entangles us and makes us to fall. If you think about the Beatitudes as a whole, what we've covered thus far, the first three Beatitudes can almost be seen as if you're descending down into the Grand Canyon. The first three are humbling, humbling, humbling. You're descending again and again as you sense this this sin that needs to be dealt with. You have to have a poverty of spirit. Recognize how poor you really are. Begin to mourn over your sin in some way and then find that lowliness of mind that doesn't trust the self but has to look outside of the self. And then it's only as you sort of get toward the bottom of the canyon, if you will, of yourself, that then you begin to look for water. You begin to thirst and hunger for righteousness as a hiker would thirst for water. And then on the other end, as you're going back up, then you begin to understand something of God's mercy. You begin to understand something of God's purity. You begin to understand something of God's peace and all of the other blessings that flow out of that. So what we see in this latter part, now that we're in this latter part of the section, we have already descended, if you will, into the depths of our own depravity, and now we're beginning to climb back up. We've sought Christ. Now we're beginning to find the blessings that are to be found in Christ Himself. And and that's the section that we're in now when He says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
So unlike the Grand Canyon, only 1% get to see something more than just a distant picture of a canyon. Uh, All Christians are called to see God, in a sense, face to face. To see Him clearly and closely. To have some sort of uh, beatific vision, as it used to be called. This idea that I can see God even now through the eyes of faith as I'm waiting to see Him face to face in person. But in order to do that, the Scripture is very plain. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, that without holiness, that is without purity, what does he say? No one will see the Lord. There has to be some aspect of purity at work in the heart of a believer in order for them, him or her to see God. And of course, if, if, if that meant in some way that we have to be perfect in holiness, in terms of our words, our thoughts, and our actions, none of us would qualify. None of us are are pure in in that manner. Proverbs 20, verse 9, uh, asks the question, uh, who can say I have kept my heart pure, that I am clean and without sin? And of course, the obvious answer is no one. No one has kept his heart pure in that manner, in some sort of absolute sense, in a sinless way. None of us have done that. And in 1 John 1, verse 8, makes that even more plain, where the apostle says, if, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It, it, it's not that we're saying we're sinless, but we're saying there's some measure of purity that's going on that we're going to be talking about here in a minute, but that, that purity of heart is not an absolute purity in the sense of sinlessness, but some sort of evangelical purity, if you will, in our relationship with Christ that begins to flow out in a progressive manner where we begin to grow in holiness and purity and righteousness and all the things that go along with that. So the, the Beatitudes are, you, you have to keep in mind the, the progression that we're at, right? So it's, it's not that um, each one of the Beatitudes is, is a step that you take and then you never take it again, but rather it's an ongoing journey. We continually go down in order to go up. We continually go down in order to go up. We continually are wrestling with our sin. Those who are blessed are mourning over their sin regularly. And then they're also blessed when they begin to grow in purity as well. It's a, it's a both and here. It's not an either or. For the, the only person who exhibits any absolute purities is Jesus, right? He's the only one who, who serves as our substitute, as our sacrifices, that pure and blameless offering unto God, but also that spotless priest who's praying on our behalf, that holy, innocent, unstained one who is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Just as God the Father, as we're told in Habakkuk, is is of purer eyes to even behold evil, Jesus won't even look upon evil. He won't even glance at it. He has no desire for it, no thought for it, no love for sin at all. Now, if you compare that to us, We not only take one look at it, we take a second look and a third look and so on and so forth. There's no way that we would ever attain to some sort of favor before God by trying to get rid of that impurity. It's impossible because it's part of our very nature until we're changed wholly where we lose this body of sin. You know, one of the most famous and long-lasting slogans in America comes from ivory soap, right? Some of you might even know it from uh, the last number of years. They've still held on to it, that 99 and 44th, 100th 
100% pure soap. Procter & Gamble came up with the idea. They, uh, prior to that, most soaps were yellow and brown in nature. They were made from pure animal fat and alkaline, and, and they were, you know, they smelled like animal fat. And so Procter & Gamble came up with the idea of making a pure white rid of all the impurities. We're, we certainly want to, but we can't. There's always going to be a partial purity in us an evangelical purity through our relationship with Christ. But, but it, does, it is a true purity, a real purity that, that begins to grow and, and blossom and, and bear fruit. And if I could put it under three headings, I'd say it like, it's like this. It's a purity of chastity. It's a purity of unity of heart. And there's also a purity of sincerity of heart. Here's what I mean. In terms of chastity, there's some level that's rising within us of a true holiness, a true righteousness, a true purity that's beginning to be seen, that can be seen as an evidence within us. We're actually growing in some way in a true purity of mind, purity of language, purity of actions. It's not perfect, but we're growing in that manner, in that way. But then there's also what you, sometimes purity can refer to the idea of wholeness or the sense of unity of heart. Uh, Psalm 86.11, David, he's praying, Lord, give me a unified heart or an undivided heart, not a heart that's, that's torn in two different directions like a two-headed man trying to go in two different ways, but rather someone who is looking for the kingdom of God and his righteousness and pursues that with a passion. Again, it's not perfect, but as we continue to grow in purity, we're going to grow in a oneness of desire, a oneness of of pursuit. Same thing uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians of, of, of the believers there that they had an undivided devotion unto the Lord. Again, it wasn't perfect, but it was continuing to grow in a unity of heart. And then finally, there's also this sincerity of heart. It's not just a, a purity that looks good on the outside but one that, that truly is forming through and through on the inside and is beginning to work itself out through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Ultimately, that's why Jesus focuses on the purity of heart rather than the purity of manner or the purity of our works, because you can always fake those things. You can, you can fake a purity of manner. You can fake a purity of works, just as the Pharisees did, right? They're always going around looking like they were pure, but inside they were as dead as is all get out. You have to forgive me for using another hiking analogy, but when you hike for 10 hours, you think a lot. Well, when I was hiking and being miserable, um, I was thinking on the outside, I looked like a hiker. <laughs> At least that day I did. I mean, I had on like Colombian gear, I didn't have on hiking boots. I bought some hiking boots, but then I was concerned that they were going to—they they didn't fit just right. So I, I, tra I traded shoes six times because I could only fit one pair of shoes on the plane because mine are big. There's no secondary option. You have to get the right shoes. But anyway, long story short, I got the right gear. I got hiking poles that I bought at Walmart that day so I wouldn't have to ship them. And then in addition to that, I had my camel pack with the water on the back, three liters. I was good to go. I thought I looked like a pretty good hiker. But then after going all the way down, then coming back, got to the water source. There was a young man sitting on a bench. And uh, after 
half the time uh, my pack had been falling off all day because I didn't put it on right, I guess. My poles kept kind of slipping because they, they weren't quite as tight as they ought to have been. And then I get to this water hole, and I can't open my water pouch. That's, that's sort of needed. And apparently I had tightened it too tight like because I was afraid that it was going to start leaking. So I, I tightened it extremely tight, and I could not get the thing off. And, and this guy's just looking at me like I'm a complete idiot. He's like, who would tighten this thing that tight? You can't get it off. And he offered to help. I was like, no, I got it. I know what I'm doing. I'm a hiker, right? And he's like, okay, and just, you know, let me bow. And he just kept sitting on the bench enjoying the day as I'm like, you know, trying to get through this thing. And as Ellen and I start to then walk up the mountain again, uh, as we walk away from him, he says, well, I'm sure I'll see you in a little bit. And I thought, oh, how arrogant you are. You think you're going to catch up with me, you know, Fifteen minutes later, he's walking way past me, three times faster than me. He could pick me out as a newbie like no, no other. That, that helps. It certainly helps. But, I mean, I had all the right gear. I looked like a hiker on the outside, but I didn't have that experience of a hiker. I didn't have it here, you know? And it's the same way with Christianity. You, you can have all the gear. I, I, I even, I've known some people that have taped their Bible up numerous times. They look like, you know, I've been using this Bible a lot. Like, it's like, it almost looks like they purposely bang up their Bible, so it looks like they use the same Bible over and over again. You know what I'm talking about. They've never had but one Bible, and they've just taped it up a thousand times. It looks good on the outside, but I wonder, I wonder, are you really reading it that much? And if you are, why so rough? I mean, come on. But, but, but it, it shouldn't be externals, right? It should be the heart. You know, you ought to be able to tell that someone has been with Christ that they know Christ. It's not just a matter of what they look like on the outside. And so, in, in Christianity, it has to begin with the heart. It always begins with the heart. If the heart is pure, it can help remove a lot of the impurities in us. So think of it this way. So again, if the heart is pure, then the blood that's pumping through our bodies becomes more pure because the whole purpose of the heart is to to pump in oxygen and nutrients to the rest of the body and to remove the waste and the carbon dioxide and all those things. If the heart is working properly and it's pure, then everything else will go in stride with that. But if there's something wrong with the heart and it can't pump, particularly those blood vessels that are trying to get rid of the, the, the bacteria and the, and the viruses and all those things, you're going to get sick and, and hurt really quickly. You need a healthy heart. It has to begin in the heart. And so a, a pure heart doesn't mean that the body's always clean and healthy, but it's, it's getting it cleaner. It's getting it more healthy as it continues to pump the right things in the right manner. And it knows, the heart always knows that there's something to fight. There's something to, to be fighting against. You need a heart. You need a pure heart that's going to fight against all those contaminants that are constantly trying to take us back again to what we used to be. Anyone with a pure heart knows not to trust themselves. Knows not to be overly confident. Knows not to think, hey, I've arrived. Because at any moment you turn around the corner and you see more contaminants just flooding out of you in that sense. It's interesting, I think I told you a couple weeks ago, I started reading Lord of the Rings. I started once when I was a kid, didn't get too far in it, but I was reading it again this 
uh, last few weeks really slowly, and uh, there's a section in it that uh, is not in the movies at all, um, but it's a section about a, a very unique character that, uh, that sticks out like a sore thumb in the book. Uh, you know, there are a number of uh, very Christ-like figures, if you will, I think, in the book. Um, Frodo is this hobbit who is carrying the ring, uh, trying to take it to Mount Doom to destroy it. In, in a sense, you could say he's the sin-bearer, if you will. He's trying to destroy sin and death. And then on the other hand, you have Gandalf, who is this wise wizard who clearly is representing something of the power and the wisdom of God. King Aragorn is a man who, who, who's clearly showing some messianic tendencies, if you will. But then there's one who sticks out more than any other who, who seems to be more Christ-like than, than the others. And, and his name would be Tom Bombadil, if I'm pronouncing his name right. He, I think he's the true foil, if you will, to Sauron, this lord, this dark, evil lord of the rings. He's not a hobbit, he's not a man, he's not a dwarf, he's not a wizard, don't know quite what he is. But he's the only one that has really nothing in common with Sauron. Sauron is this character who, who craves power, and in some sense, impurity. And every other character, even though he's a dwarf, uh, he's a, a man, he's a wizard, whatever it is, all of them fall under the spell of the ring, even for a moment, and, and then quickly are enamored by it. They're calling this ring their precious, their prized possession. They really, really want it. They crave it. But Tom Bombadil, when he, he takes the ring from Frodo, he looks at it really quickly, and it's like a trinket to him. It's like a toy of no value whatsoever. And when any other person would put the ring on their finger, they immediately disappear and they have this great power. But he puts it on his finger, he doesn't disappear. But rather, he then takes it off, throws it up in the air, and he makes the ring disappear. Showing that he has power over even whatever this dark lord has done in that sense. And he's, he's so unique of a character, every time you see him, he's dancing and whistling, and, and laughing, and, and, and singing wherever he goes. Even as he goes around these dark turns in murky forests, he's, he has no fear of evil whatsoever. He's just constantly acting like a big kid and loving life. And I was reading the other day someone else's interpretation. If you think about Lord of the Rings, almost every character, every scene in there is some sort of shade of gray, a lot of gray, a lot of darkness. But Tom Bombadil is the only character in the story He's all primary colors, yellow, red, and blue. He just sticks out like a sore thumb. He looks totally different than anything else there. And, and, and you, I, the way I Im imagined him was sort of like, you just, he's just a really big kid who never grew up, if you will, right? In fact, you, can you think of it, not that children are innocent. We know that they're just as evil as the rest of us. Amen to that. But there's a sense in which, at some point, a child begins to turn toward the teen years and starts to think for themselves, and they're even more enamored by the world. They're more enticed, they're more allured, and they don't want to listen to their parents anymore. They don't want to listen to the voice of reason. They don't want to listen to wisdom. And they turn into some hideous thing. You know what I'm saying? We all have been there, right? But Tom is like that person who never turned. He, he, he never turned toward that evil path, never desired that impurity, that power that the rest of us have desired. And, and I, for that reason, I really do think he is the most Christ-like character in the book. He's meant to show us that someone who has a pure heart like Tom has, he looks entirely different than anyone else in the world. 
Everyone else thinks the whole world is shades of gray. He's like, no, it's primary colors. It's life and light compared to all this darkness. And so he's just this little kid who's dancing and singing and whistling. Very loud, bright character because he's so different from the rest of the world. And yet he's not a child. He's a man. He's fully grown, fully wise, fully powerful, and yet nothing like the rest of us. So he seems backward. He seems unsophisticated to the rest of the people in the story. But he's, he's meant to point us to something greater, something higher in, in that sense. Um, I was thinking of uh, Psalm 19. There are two, two times the psalmist says there this statement. He says, I hate every false path. And that was in my mind this week, and I was thinking, is that true of me? Do I hate every false path? Or is, is there a part of me that really enjoys certain paths that I know I ought not to be on? Do I give in to the pressure from the rest of the world because they think those paths are okay? Do I just want to fit in? What, 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 what's going on in my own heart? Because the, 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 there's a blessing, if you will, from the world. There's a maxim that this world teaches. And, and it goes something like this. Blessed are those who fit in and who don't stick out. Blessed are those who look like one more shade of gray. Blessed are those who go along with the crowd because it's so much easier. Blessed are those who join in with the wicked and their gossip and their swearing and all their evil ways for they will not be made fun of. They will not get hurt, but instead they will be the hurter of others. They will win. Is that not what the world teaches? Is that, what, is that not what we learn at a very young age? There is a blessing that this world has to offer. It's, it's diametrically opposed to the blessings of God. I think the Scripture teaches more blessed are the Tom Bombadils, those who hate every false way, who refuse every form of compromise, who stand up for the weak and who stand against evil. They're zealous and courageous for the things of the Lord, even though they look like fools to the rest of us. Because they're so different. They stick out. It's interesting, the Puritans themselves received that title, Puritan, in a pejorative manner by their enemies because they, you're just being too excessive. All you care about is purity, holiness. What's a horrible thing? Everyone else in the Church of England at that time liked some sort of civic aspect of morality, but don't take Christianity so seriously. Don't take it so personally. And the, the Puritans, they just constantly craved purity in the church as well as purity in their own lives. And because of that, they're absolutely hated. Even to this day, people still talk about the Puritans in a very bad manner. They're just horrible people. They think they're all legal. They're not. They're, they're, I'm sure there are probably a few, like there are a few of in any other brand of Christianity in that sense. But the vast majority of Puritans loved the Lord. And they loved the purity of God's ways. And yet the world hated them for it. In fact, I, I find even today, if, even in my own preaching, if I, if I just preach the grace of God and, and preach that God gives you forgiveness for your sins, I, I'd never have anybody upset with me about that. <laughs> Look, that sounds great. That's good. But the minute I say, you need to repent of your sins, you ought to seek the holiness of God. There's always someone who's like, why do you always preach about holiness? I actually had one person who came up to me a few years ago 
and just said, I, it just gets on my nerves every time you talk about holiness. And they were fearful. I said, well, I, I don't have any fear when I hear of the holiness of God because I know where I stand with Christ. That's because he loves me. I want to grow in holiness. I'm not, I'm not preaching this to try to make you earn your own way or to try to instill more fear in you. But just to know that this is the way of Christ. He saved us for what? For holiness. He saved us for purity. But if we misunderstand that, we misunderstand the whole thing. And, and yet you see again and again in our culture, the church doesn't want to hear that. Certainly the culture doesn't want to hear it. It's okay to preach justification, but if you preach holiness, people get upset. But again, what does the writer of Hebrews say? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. You won't see him. You'll miss him. So what does he mean by that? How and when will they see him? And and what must they do in order to see him in that manner? Well, we know it can't mean simply physically seeing him, because uh, if if it means you physically see him, you're automatically blessed in some way. Then the Pharisees would have been blessed, because the Pharisees literally saw Christ, did they not? And many unbelieving Romans also saw Christ, and many unbelieving Jews saw Christ, and yet they weren't blessed. They weren't pure. So it doesn't mean that. Of course, it, it has to mean, on, on the one hand, at the end of the age when Christ returns, that literally we'll see Him with our eyes, we'll see the physical Christ. But I don't think that's all He means by that here. There, there's, there seems to be more to that than just the end of time. But even, even now, you'll notice that most of the Beatitudes are phrased in such a way as, your, you will be, or this will be yours. But He's referring to both the present as well as the future. That's why we sang that song earlier, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. We're not saying we want to see him physically, but we want to see him in some experiential way. Ephesians 1.18 is the, the text that that song is based upon. Paul's praying for the believers that the eyes of their hearts might be enlightened, that they might know Christ. They might see him in an experiential manner. 1 Corinthians 13.12, Paul even admits, he says that we do see God in some way now, even though dimly, as in a darkened mirror, right? Eventually, we'll see Him face to face, but even now, we see some image of Him now. In fact, he compares, in 2 Corinthians, he compares the Jews who can't see Him because they won't come to God through Christ. It's like a veil is over their eyes at every moment. They can't see God. But on the other hand, any believer who has trusted in Christ and is walking with Christ, the veil is removed. I can see Him in some way. You remember those uh, magic eye pictures in the 90s? You know what I'm talking about? Those uh, two-dimensional, they call them stereograms. Uh, mine were posters that I hung on the wall. And if you stare at them in a weird way, all of a sudden you see a 3D-dimensional figure inside the two-dimensional thing. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you had to cross your eyes in order to see the third three-dimensional figure. Sometimes you were told to sort of look through the picture, like sort of stare off to the corner, and so you could see the picture out of the peripheral vision that you have. There are a number of different ways of the ways it was done. Sometimes they had ones that were Christian, and they would even have Jesus written in it. 
And you had to look at it in a weird way. You know, you would see Jesus, you know, in that sense. Well, in order to see God, you don't cross your eyes, or cross your fingers, or do some other trick of, of, of that kind. Really, the Scripture says very plainly, in order to see God, you simply have to draw near to Him in purity, in holiness. The half-brother of Jesus says it this way, James 4, verse 8. He says, draw near to God, and what? He will draw near to you. It's like the Grand Canyon. You might see God from afar if you only stay at the rim, but you have to go in deeper. You have to spend time with Him in order to really see Him. You have to make that descent, if you will. You have to empty yourself and of the sin in order to come away with Christ's righteousness. So, so James says this, in addition to drawing near to God, he's sort of explaining what that means. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. In other words, seek that undivided heart, that unified heart that only seeks God's kingdom and His righteousness. But then he adds, and weep over your sin. Humble yourself before the Lord, and then what? He will exalt you. But it's the humbling going down that has to take place before you can be exalted to see this vision of God. And there's a sense in which every believer can see something of God, if you will. I mean, uh, think of it just in terms of creation. Every believer, I think, who has any grasp of God as the Creator can then sense. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 17. All of a sudden, the world just looked different to me. And I, I, I professed faith in Christ at the beach. And all of a sudden, I remember going out and just looking at the ocean going, this is all God's. He's made all this. It's wonderfully made. And it was interesting because uh, when we went to the Grand Canyon, the first person that I talked to, one of the much better hikers than me, um, pretty much everybody on the bus, um, he said, wow, this erosion, isn't that just fantastic? That's all he could say. I was like, well, I guess so, you know. I was like, that's all you see is erosion? You don't see anything else? He, he couldn't see God in God's creation. Every believer can see something of, of God's hand, if you will, in creation. In the same sense, believers, I think, uh, as they grow in their faith, also begin to see something of God's backside, if you will, in providence through our trials and our tribulations, and we see the unfolding of historical events, and we see God is here. He's at work here. He's doing something great here, even though I don't understand it. But, but I think when a, a believer is really growing in his or her faith, it's not just creation, it's not just providence, but particularly time spent in God's Word. As they read God's Word, they read the Word of Christ and they spend time understanding who God is, they begin to see Christ. It's not just, they're not just reading laws. They're not just reading wisdom of Proverbs. They're not just reading stories. But they're seeing Christ through His Word. They're meeting with Christ in His Word. And the same thing can be said in prayer. As, you, as you're praying and you're, you're lifting up your hearts and your burden, you're not just 
going through motions of prayer, but you're meeting with Christ in prayer. There's something there, someone there, that you didn't see before, you didn't feel before. And again, when I say see, the, the word see, as it's written in the Greek here, is it, it, it can also mean perceive or feel or sense, not just literally physically see. You sense God is here with me. He's speaking to me. He cares for me. He's doing these things for my behalf. And, and, and certainly the same thing can be said for the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's interesting the way it's phrased uh, in, in 1 Corinthians is not just remember what Christ has done. What does he say? Remember me. It's this personal relationship with Christ that we meet with Christ at his table through the power of the Spirit as He works in our hearts to confirm the truth of what has been said in Scripture, we remember Christ. Again, it's a dim image. Paul says that very plainly. It's not a really clear one. The clear one doesn't happen until your transformation, if you will, into the new world. But it's still an image of Christ and one that we long to know more and more. So we set our hearts toward heaven. We, we ask the Lord to continue to open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. When I go to read God's Word, Lord, show me yourself. So I pray, speak with me. Reveal yourself to me. Peter says, every man who has this hope of heaven, he purifies himself. He longs for what he can see in the future, but in the meantime, he continues to purify himself through the washing of the water of the word if you will crying out to God I want to see you for the Lord says this to us Psalm 27 says very plainly seek my face seek my face and David says in response to the Lord your face O Lord do I seek the pure in heart your face, O Lord, do I seek. That's what they say. David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To what? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In the land of the living, he says. What he means by that is here now, even before I've taken from this world and, and transferred into a new realm in the land of the living, may I see the face of the Lord. May I gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's my one desire, he says. That's what I seek. That's what all the pure in heart seek. Not perfectly. They continue to grow in that ability and in that desire. May the Lord add that desire to our desire this day. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would move in our hearts, that they would resonate with this message. Even if we don't have this desire, Lord, we pray that you would put this desire within us. That we would see a, a true joy in the land of the living. That we would have a, a, a strong assurance of the presence and power of God in, in this world and in our lives and what's going on 
in our country and elsewhere. Lord, we pray that You would continue to confirm these things as You give us the eyes of faith to see them. Lord, we know that there are many in the past who have seen but could not perceive. Lord, we pray that You would give us both. Give us the eyes to see and perceive the God who has made us, the God who has saved us, and the God who calls us to a greater pursuit, holiness, and purity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.